0: listener supported St Gabriel Catholic Radio AM 820 brings you Foundations in Faith Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at mass And now Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane Spirit, This is Father Frank Lane we're continuing our program Foundations in Faith and today we're going to look at the gospel according to St Matthew chapter 21 verses 33 to 43 the parable that he tells here is, is a parable that's it's kind of, in some ways, a redundancy because it's the very thing that he talked about um, in the previous chapter, the very thing that he talked about, kind of the leaving behind of those who had been called, and uh, about the two young men, the two sons going to work, and kind of the rejection of the one who said he would do it and didn't, and the acceptance of the one who said he wouldn't do it and then did. And we saw that that was, Jesus was comparing the response of the Gentiles, the response basically of sinners, to uh, the invitation into the new covenant versus the response of the Jewish leadership of the old covenant. And saying that, you know, and I think that this is something that is, is much more complex than we can deal with right here, but there's a difference between rejecting the Jewish leadership of the old covenant and in any way, shape, or form, rejecting the Old Covenant itself as being an essential and a critical element of, uh, of revelation, of God's revelation of himself to his people and of his people to themselves. And so there's a few things in this particular parable, in today's Gospel, that we're going to look at in order to clarify those two issues, maybe, maybe a little bit more. The Gospel says, Jesus said to the chief priests and the elders of the people, Okay, this is the very same group that he was talking to when he talked about the two sons, one who said he would go and one who said he wouldn't go. And he says to them, there was a man, a landowner, who planted a vineyard. He fenced it around, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And then he leased it to tenants, and he went abroad. When vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his produce, But the tenants seized the servants, thrashed one, killed another, and stoned a third. So next he sent some more servants, and this time a larger number, and they dealt with them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them. Certainly, he said, they would respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take over his inheritance. So they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they answered, Well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will deliver the produce to him when the season arrives. And Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? It was the stone rejected by the builders that became the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is wondrous to see. I tell you then that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. All right, that's the whole gospel. One of the interesting things is, and here maybe just a short discussion about the role that the Old Testament plays in our life of faith, our life of revelation. And there was a tendency, and certainly it was a radical tendency in, uh, in the 16th century during the fracturing of Christianity, when the Old Testament was kind of jettisoned as being, you know, not really very valuable. That's been a temptation all the way along. It was a temptation that took place certainly with the Gnostic heresies of the first couple centuries when they actually saw the God of the Old Testament as an evil God and the God of the, of the material world and the God of the New Testament as a good God and uh, the God of the spiritual world. Well, that obviously has nothing to do with revelation and has nothing to do with scripture itself. And, and I think that this kind of ends up being kind of a constant throughout history, even into the contemporary world when uh, Pope Benedict XVI um, said that uh, the real hermeneutical tool, the real interpretive tool of the Old Testament is Jesus Christ, he was accused of of being anti-Semitic, which means that it's that in the mind of the accusers that there is no relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And such, of course, is totally contrary to Revelation itself and totally contrary to the tradition of the faith. And so if we want to see something, this is interesting, if we want to see something about the relevance of the Old Testament to the New Testament, and how, in fact, those are, those are complementary realities, um, let's listen to uh, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, the ancient prophecy. Let me sing a song to my friend, the song of his love for his vineyard. My friend had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug the soil, cleared it of stones. Planted choice vines on it, and in the middle he built a tower. He dug a press there too. He expected it to yield grapes, but sour grapes were all it gave. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem, manager, I ask you to judge between my vineyard and me. What could I have done more for my vineyard than I have not that I have done? I expected it yield of grapes. Why did it yield sour grapes instead? Very well, I tell you, what I am going to do to my vineyard, I will take away its hedges for it to be grazed on and knock down its wool for it to be trampled on, and so forth. So here we have the very parable that Jesus is telling in this 21st chapter of Matthew's Gospel is as close as you can get without being verbatim to the very prophecies of Isaiah. Back in the early days of Isaiah in the 5th chapter, the verses 1 through 7, of his prophecies. So that, can we say that somehow or other Jesus jettisoned the Old Testament? Can we say that Jesus did not use the Old Testament to bring to a greater depth of understanding what he was talking? We cannot say that. And as a matter of fact, when he was on the road to Emmaus when the disciples and they were lamenting that Jesus had died, they were saying, well, we had hoped all this, but none of this came to be. And he said to them, how foolish you are and then on the road he told them everything in the Old Testament that referred to himself. So if, Benedict, if Pope Benedict was anti-Semitic in saying that, well then so is Jesus anti-Semitic in saying that. And uh, those who challenge on that kind of ground should actually go back to the library and start over again. But is this, is this not, does this not sound very similar to the parable of the two sons? One said yes and didn't do it, one said no did it. Is that not exactly what this parable is about as well? But there is a difference in the New Testament parable, and it's that difference that we're going to look at. We do understand that the leadership of the Old Covenant is going to pass away, and that as a matter of fact, if we look into modern Judaism, it has passed away. Gone is the Sanhedrin, gone are the high priests, gone are the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and so forth. The leadership of the Old Testament Covenant is, is, is passed away. Now, does this mean that somehow or other modern Judaism in all of its multiple forms, somehow or other, are essential to Christian belief? A debate, a discussion, um, certainly insofar as they have moved beyond the prophetic tradition, we would not say that to be so insofar as they adhere to the prophetic tradition, then we would say that it is so. And so we have, therefore, a a mitigated understanding of the role that the Old Covenant plays in Christianity. But certainly in Scripture, look how clear that was, both of them talking about the same thing how they built a hedge and how they built a, and to protect because the hedge around the vineyards were stone fences to keep wild animals from coming in and grazing on the vineyards. It also resisted some of the flash floods and so forth. that came with the spring rains. It was a necessary thing to sustain the integrity of, of the vineyard. So they're saying here, he dug a wine press in it, he planted a vineyard, built a fence, and so forth. Um, It's the same kind of imagery of how you preserve a vineyard that Jesus is talking about, that Isaiah was talking about in the fifth chapter. But then there's there's something a little bit different. And in the New Testament we find, but the tenants seized the servants who came to reap the harvest. They thrashed one of them, killed another, stoned a third. Who are these servants? Well, very obviously the servants are the prophets. For Jesus the Lord has sent the prophets into Israel to bring Israel back to fidelity to the covenant. And the prophets have come upon unsightly ends over and over again. Um, We know they are rejected. We know they are imprisoned. We know they are starved. We know they are thrown into cisterns. We know all of that kind of thing about what happened to the prophets of the Old Testament. And they are the servants that the Lord had sent to bring fruition to the vineyard, to the crop, to the revelation, to the covenant that the Lord had planted among his people and protected it. But then he said, so once they had done that to the prophets, and we know we have waves of prophets coming. And uh, so he sent more prophets because they, and thinking, well, surely enough, this time they would have learned their lesson. But he sent even more But it says in the Gospel that they dealt with them in the same way. Now here is where there's a radical break with the prophecies of Isaiah. Because Jesus then said, finally he sent his son to them. And there can be a lot of arguments about this particular line in this parable. And there are those scripture scholars who say, well obviously that's added back into there by the post-resurrection early Christian Palestinian community. However, there is an integrity to the whole story that makes it belong there. And, uh, and so most of the rarely responsible scholars will say, yes, it is an integral part. Jesus had in mind what was going to happen to him. And he certainly had very clearly in his mind that he was the son of the landowner. He was the son of God. The landowner said, they will respect my son, certainly. Certainly. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Let us kill him and take over the inheritance. This is a ringing condemnation of the chief priests and the elders of Jerusalem. For they are the ones, what was the famous line of Caiaphas, the high priest? It's good for one man to die for for the others, for the brethren so that, yes, let us take him and get rid of him. Let us, let us execute him. Remember the argument with Pilate. And Pilate said he hasn't done anything wrong. And they said, yeah, but if you don't kill him, you know, then we will tell Caesar that you're supporting insurrection and so forth. And so Pilate being a, a, a political creature, said, well, I'm not going to get them all riled up. And the Caiaphas says, that's fine, because, you know, to kill one person for the sake of the others, that's all right. You go ahead and do that and you'll have peace, which, of course, was absurd. But it seemed like what he said was reasonable at the time. And so what did they do when he sent his son? What happens to those who had expected the Messiah, who had been given and trusted with a covenant? What happens when the Messiah comes? They reject him. And interestingly enough, they said, let us take him over his inheritance. So they seized him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They threw him out of the seat of the covenant, out of Jerusalem. He had to be crucified outside the city walls. And so Jesus is making very clear reference to his rejection by the chief priests and the elders, very clear reference to his execution, and very clear reference to the fact that he is taken outside the seat of the covenant in order in order for this horrendous injustice to take place. Then Jesus goes on to say, so this is what's going to happen. Notice here, if this were a post-resurrection story, there would have been some kind of hint of the resurrection, but there is none. It's just that they're going to kill him. And then the consequences are going to come not from the risen Lord. The consequences are going to come from the Father, from God himself. So now when the owner of the vineyard, when God comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they answered, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will deliver the produce to him when their season arrives. How oblivious are the chief priests and the elders, even to the prophecies of Isaiah, where they see Jesus in some ways verbatim taking a prophecy, turning it into a parable, and using it as a self-revelation to the leaders of the Jewish community of the first century Jerusalem. They're totally oblivious to that, and all they're doing is trying to get accolades from the crowd. And so they said, Jesus said to them, "Whoa! have you never read the scriptures? It was the stone rejected by the builders that became the keystone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. It is exactly, then, this idea that they had rejected in the cornerstone, which comes to us also, that sense comes to us from the Old Testament, and actually then Jesus is saying, I am the foundation of the new covenant and you're rejecting me. You're going to kill me. And what do you think the consequences of that is, are going to be? How do you see that? For I tell you, this is the consequence, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit this is the same thing as the son who went who said no and went into the vineyard the son who said yes and did not go into the vineyard that which one of which one of these did the will of the father and they are put into a corner where of course they choose the gentiles not being able to say anything else just like here not being able to say anything else so in both cases there is the self-incrimination of the leadership of the covenant. It is the self-incrimination. What, what will you do? what will they, What will the Lord do to the people who have killed the son? Uh, the one who came to claim his rightful heritage, his rightful inheritance, which were the people of the old covenant. What will happen to those who killed him instead of letting him do that? Why then even the chief priests and the scribes, because of the crowd have to say, well, he'll bring those rich wretches to a wretched end and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will deliver the produce to him when the season arrives. And Jesus said, fine. Now, remember, it was the stone rejected by the builders that became the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was wonderful to see. There we are. It's so clear. And yet they refuse to see it. They absolutely refuse to see it. Even when he moves from Isaiah to the 118th Psalm about the cornerstone and the rejection of, uh, of the cornerstone, that's their heritage. That's these people's heritage. And because they are so attuned to seeking the accolades of the crowd to support their position, to defend their position, and so forth. What are they going to do with all that? You know. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll say whatever is obviously a crowd pleaser. And Jesus then says to them, fine, then you're going to lose everything, and it's going to be given to the people who will produce fruit. And once again, you know, we, we, we've looked at this before. What does this mean for us? I mean, obviously, we're grappling now with the tension between the Messiah and the leadership of the Old Covenant. We're grappling with the relationship of the Old Covenant, the New. We're grappling with the relationship. I think probably the greatest the greatest image that we have of the relationship of the Old Covenant to the New is is the visitation. When the last of the prophet leaps in the womb of its mother in order to greet the first, the Messiah, the founder of the new covenant. It is a joyful handing over of a tradition that will not die away, but come to life where Jesus himself, now in two cases, he quotes Isaiah and he quotes Psalm 118. All of them should have seen the handwriting on the wall with that, all of them should, and they all pretend that they didn't and pretended that this was just kind of an entertaining public debate. And Jesus said, fine, you'll reap, the, you'll reap the consequences of your shallowness and your emptiness. What about us? We have a body of Revelation too. And we have, we have, in continuation from the Old Testament, beginning with John the Baptist, we have our series of prophets. Our prophets who have been raised up for us. We call them saints. But they have been raised up for us to call people back to fidelity to the New Covenant. They have washed themselves in the produce of the vineyard. They have washed themselves in the wine of Revelation. They have brought the experience of the Messiah into the lives of people of every age, of every time, of every place. They have done that. And yet we move into the modern world and what do we hear? What do we hear from the media, even the Roman media, is, oh, Jesus is too strict, Jesus is too harsh, and so forth. Isn't that what the chief priests and the elders said? You know, he doesn't want us to enjoy the good life, so why should we be faithful? Why should we not even recognize the prophecies of Isaiah when we hear them, the Psalms when we hear them? Why should we not even recognize that? What we want to do is be crowd pleasers. What does Spadaro and the rest of them want to do? Be crowd pleasers they they want to they want to join what seems to be this wave of history which moves us inevitably into into a woke future where it is where there is no objectivity objectivity to revelation, where they buy into the theories and the theology of revelation currently um, being purported at the University of Levain in Belgium by a philosopher by the name of Bove, who is basically saying the only revelation we have is the is the revelation that is relativized in our own personal consciousness. Um, isn't that where the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people are moving us in this day and age? Isn't this what we're getting out of places all over the world? Aren't we getting it out of the German Synod? Aren't we getting it out uh, out of the Roman Jesuit publications? Aren't we getting it out of some of the hierarchy in Spain and in Belgium and in the Netherlands and so forth? And in our own country, aren't we getting it there? And when we do, this gospel should come almost visually before our eyes. And we should reflect on it and pray over it for the well-being of the church. For if we have a component of the leadership of the people of the covenant, doing what the chief priests and the scribes did to Jesus, should we not pray for the souls and the faith of our people? We should. Does this mean that we are to start a crusade? Of course not, because unlike the chief priests and the scribes of the old covenant, These are instituted not by a rabbinic tradition or a priestly tradition, but by Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament. We are not therefore entitled to overthrow, we are not entitled to reject, we are not entitled to deny authenticity to it. But we are entitled to be concerned and we are entitled to pray for their well-being and the well-being of the church. We are entitled to pray that the people of the earth hear the true word of Jesus Christ, that they come to know him as a person and that they can move more deeply into the mystery of his presence. We can pray that we ourselves do the same thing. We are not certainly somehow or other tasked with carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders. We we are not atlas. We are not carrying the weight of the world. We are called to individual fidelity and individual holiness within the church. We are called to share that and to witness that, witness it by our lives and witness it by our care for others, witness it within the vineyard itself for the well-being of the produce of the Lord's Word who are the people of God. We are tasked with all of those things, and we are sent into the depth for all of those things. What happens among the chief priests and the elders is not really anything that we can do anything about, except to pray, to be concerned, and to ask the Lord for guidance and strength and illumination, to ask him to guide his people for even in the words, even in the prophecies of of Ezekiel, even though the shepherds of Israel have been sent, that the people, the sheep, the flock, are still in some way guided by the Lord God themselves. The people of the new covenant are guided by the grace of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, by the merits of Christ and his saints, and by the merits of the great saints and the saints of our own age, our own time, our own place. We are called to move forward in holiness. And if things seem to crumble around us, well, then so be it. This is not our world to control. This is not our world to determine how God is going to run it. We have no idea what the Lord uses human sinfulness for. We have no idea how the, year, how the Lord uses the merits of holy lives for the good of others. This is the realm of the divine that we're struggling with. We can only deal with what the divine infuses into our human hearts through grace, through the love of God and Christ for us. So let us live our faith. Let us live it in the depth of our hearts and and to the extent of our whole being. And let us live it not with wringing our hands and mourning and weeping over what happens beyond our control. But let us be concerned about the world in which we live, in which you live and I live, the peoples we live with, the peoples whose lives we touch, the people who we can in some way way or shape or form become a vehicle of revelation and a vehicle of hope and a vehicle of peace and a vehicle of joy. Let us be a people who enjoys their lives. And let us be a people who shares the enjoyment of that life with others. And let much of our enjoyment come from the deep and abiding sense that the Lord has given us, has died for us and risen from the dead, that we might be saved. And let us live in confidence and trust that if we hear him, if we follow him, that we may believe in the depths of our hearts that he will save us and save those who are members of our families, our friends, and so forth. Save the people who will believe and follow the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.